The day in which we live, unfortunately, within especially North American evangelicalism, the challenge is to go through a Bible book in the first place. Because even as my wife and I were talking about this morning, we live in a day and an age in which people want you to go over something in a once-over lightly fashion. They don't want you to go too much in depth. They don't want you to get bogged down in these studies. In fact, I was talking to John MacArthur recently and I asked him, John, how long actually have you been in the book of Luke? Because I remember shortly after leaving Grace Community Church, he started the book of Luke and he said, this is my 10th year in the book. And I recently noted as well that John Piper had completed eight years of study through the book of Romans. And I said, hey, we're only four and a half, which obviously means he's twice as good as I am. When you go through the book of Romans as we have, and as you come near now to the end, after almost four and a half years of study, when you come to a section like Romans 16 and you have all of these persons for whom Paul is greeting, you ask yourself as the preacher, how do I approach such a text? What do I do? How do I bring an encouragement to the people as it relates to all of these names and all of these persons and all of these events and all of this history that frankly has very little to do with us in the 21st century? In fact, there are probably those who would say, look, It's just a group of names. It's a list of people we don't know. Let's just skip it and move on. Let's do the once-over lightly routine. Let's not get bogged down with these things. And yet, if it's true that the Word of God, every single letter, is precious and important, and to the degree that Romans 16 is a part of the end of Paul's greatest letter ever written, then we need to study it. We need to understand it. And so in this one message, I want to take us through the latter part of verse 5 all the way through verse 16, and I want to talk about the house churches of Rome. Apparently there were approximately five of them, if in fact Paul's grouping of these lists of people are any indication. And what you have, of course, in Romans 16.1 is Paul's commendation, actually verses 1 and 2, of Phoebe, faithful servant of the Lord. We spent a message talking about her and her ministry, maybe even that person who was given the actual letter of this book of Romans and asked to take it to them so that they might read it aloud in their congregation. And then in verses 3, 4, and the first part of verse 5, we talked about Aquila and Priscilla, or Prisca, a couple who was greatly beloved of the Lord, and Paul, in commending them also, wanted to give them a special greeting. And it appears as though in the grouping of the names that come directly after Paul says, greet them and greet others in their house, which of course implies that they had a house church there. He gives apparently some names that were common in their house church and for others. Look with me at Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 3. Greet Prisca, that is Priscilla and Aquila, 
my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trufina and Trufosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, as I said, there seems to be five house churches that Paul is referring to here, which could actually turn out for us to be an outline of this passage. Five house churches where Paul mentions certain representatives of each of these house churches. And of course, you might ask the question, why? Why would Paul end this great letter in a major section of this chapter by simply reviewing these names, greeting them, and speaking a word of commendation about them? Well, as I thought about that this week, one of the things that came clearly to my mind, and maybe it does to yours as well, is that one of the great principles that should come out of this text is something like this. The commonality for every single person that Paul commends, and with Paul himself, is that they were all committed to the gospel. They were all committed to the gospel. The thing that tied every one of them was the commonality of their union with Jesus Christ. And if you understand that, you understand why Paul would take time and pen and ink, which was not common in that day, in which I'm sure there was a shortage of, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul would take time and effort to give these names that would be forever captured in human history under that inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we would understand that the gospel means people. You remember I said when I opened up Romans chapter 16 verse 1, and I said relationships are everything. And for Paul, it is absolutely the case 
He wants to make sure that every single person that he either knows of personally or people that he knows about are commended by him for the sake of their common heritage in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He loves them. And I think that's a second principle that comes through this list here. And that is that Paul is not some mere theologian who has penned the greatest letter ever written, but Paul is also a lover of people. He's a pastor. He's a pastor theologian. And I can't think of a greater thing than to aspire as a pastor to be a pastor theologian. Someone who knows the Word of God well and can articulate its truths to anyone around him and to those within his flock and those who can debate heretics and reprove those who are not sound in the faith, but also a man who, while he be a great theologian, is also someone who is a pastor who loves his people. And you cannot miss Romans 16, verses 1 to 16, without seeing that Paul is a lover of his people. And what's amazing about this as well is that Paul did not found the church in Rome. He knows many of them, as is attested here. In fact, if you include Phoebe at the beginning of the list, and if I have my numbers accurately, give or take a few, there are probably some 27 people that Paul is referring to here in this very, very short list. And who knows? There may not have been that many more people in the church at Rome. So Paul takes a major section of this chapter and he wants to speak about people. I think that's grand. I think that's marvelous. I think what he's doing is he's modeling for me as a pastor and he's modeling for you as a people the idea of loving one another and especially commending each other for our role in this grand and glorious cause we call the propagation of the gospel. Now when you look at these five churches and when you find out some of these wonderful commending attributes, I think for us it is a grand thing also to want to model the very things that Paul commends about them. And you ought to take these attributes as I give them to you, these commendations, and you ought to ask yourself the question, is this true of me? Or if even I struggle to affirm some of these attributes that Paul gives to them in my own life, can I turn around and begin to apply these things to my own life? And can I also commend by way of encouragement others in the body who I see do manifest these actions, these attributes? What a wonderful opportunity for us to come to the end of the book of Romans here in several short weeks with this being one of those commending sermons for us in the body of Christ we call BCLR. Let's look at the first house church, the first of five. Look at the latter part of verse 5 of chapter 16. You know that it says, of course, in the first part of verse 5, greet also the church in their house, that is Prisca and Aquila. Obviously, they were commended first. They had this house church. Maybe it was the largest because it appears as though there's a number of believers who are affirmed by Paul that may have been in their house. And at the end of verse 5 it says, Greet my beloved Epinetus. Epinetus. 
And believe me, I worked hard at trying to figure out the correct pronunciation of these names. Because in the Greek New Testament, when you look at these names, of course, they are actually pronounced very differently. We have to anglicize them. We have to say them in English. And so, if you don't want to say epinetus, because you see the vowels there, A and E, they elide together, maybe you just want to say eponetus, all right? Eponetus. Notice what Paul says about eponetus or eponetus. It says, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. It may have been that Paul led this man to Christ, or maybe even because of his being in the house church of Aquila and Priscilla, maybe they led him to Christ. The cultural center of Asia at that time was Ephesus, and Aquila and Priscilla were there. And so if this Gentile was in fact in Ephesus and who was under the influence of the gospel by Aquila and Priscilla, he may have come with them to Rome and is now a part of the house church with them. The first convert to Christ in Asia. What a way to commend this beloved man in the Lord. Verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Maybe another person in the house church of Aquila and Priscilla. And you might assume that this is a Jewish person because of that name Mary, but there were actually many, many Gentiles who would name their daughters Mary. Maybe even that Latin Maria could be who this is referring to, so we don't know, but we know this. Look at what Paul says about her. Who has worked hard for you? Kapiao. That word means working to the point of exhaustion. And isn't it wonderful that in this list, Paul begins by talking about someone like Mary, whoever she is, and he also talks about several other women in this passage, and he affirms that women are every much a part of the work of the gospel ministry. It's a wonderful affirmation of the hard work that women do for the sake of the gospel. In fact, it may be said that behind the scenes, women do more hard work than the men at times. And he says, in commending her, who has worked hard for you? That is the church. Are you working hard, women, for the sake of the gospel? Are you like this Mary for whom it could be commended of you and your life and your attitude, and your diligence, that you are working hard for the sake of the gospel. And then notice some others. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, or they are esteemed among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. A little bit of detail here. Andronicus is, of course, the name of the man. And Junia could actually be the name of a man if this were shortened and if the accent mark was in such a way that it could be translated or pronounced Junius, which would be the name of a man. If that's the case, then you have two men, Andronicus and Junia, 
whom Paul says, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. We don't know exactly in the chronology of Paul's journeys when they might have been fellow prisoners with him. It may simply be a reference to the idea that at some point in their life they were prisoners like Paul, not necessarily prisoners with Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul mentions that he has had many imprisonments. And we can't actually chronologically figure out every single one of those. So they could have been prisoners with Paul. And if so, it would have been that these two men suffered for the sake of the gospel as fellow prisoners with Paul. But there's something also interesting about this. This term, Junia, this name, could actually be a female name. In fact, Junia is the name of a female Junius, the name of a male. If you look in your ESV alternate translation down at the bottom, you see or Junius. That's the male name. That was not common. That was not at all common. Other than this particular reference to Junius, if it is a male, there are probably only three other references that scholars can find for a reference to a male name Junius. Probably leads us to believe that this in fact is a woman and could further then lead us to believe that Andronicus and Junia are husband and wife. You say, what's significant about that? Well, there are those who say that if this is true, Andronicus and Junia being a husband and wife team, notice what it says about them in the verse. They are well known to the apostles, or better translated, esteemed among the apostles, which implies that they in fact themselves might be apostles. You say, what's the challenge with that? That's a female apostle. And there are those who would like to see a female apostle in the church because they would like to see the role of women expand to the idea that women have as much authority and place and role and service in the church as any man does. And so they fight for Junia being a woman's name and they fight for the idea that this means that she was esteemed just like her husband and just like others as apostles of Jesus Christ. Well, even if that's the way this is supposed to be seen by Paul as he writes it, that doesn't necessarily mean that Junia was a part of the twelve. In fact, go back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 14, you have a listing of someone who I know that we know well, Barnabas, but who himself was not a part of the twelve, which implies that even the term apostle itself simply means, in a sense, generically, a messenger. Someone who's a Christian emissary for the Lord. Someone who's carrying a message. That is, apostle with a small a. Look at chapter 14 of the book of Acts, verse 14. But when the apostles... What's the next word? Barnabas. When the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. Isn't that interesting? You and I would not normally think of Barnabas as one of the twelve. And the answer to that, of course, is he wasn't. He wasn't one of the twelve, but he's referred to as an apostle here. Maybe even better translated, the messengers, Barnabas and Paul. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is another reference to both the twelve and others who were sent with the message of the gospel who were called apostles. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. Christ was buried, He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Verse 5, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. That's clearly a reference to the apostles with a capital A. But notice verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the, what? Apostles. The sent ones. The messengers. The Christian emissaries of the Lord. There are a couple of other references in our New Testament to this very idea that there were apostles of Christ who were not the twelve. The twelve. The uniquely called ones who were called by Christ Himself, who were witnesses of His resurrection, and who were then ultimately called the apostles of the church, for which a foundation was laid according to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20. And there were others in the church who were sent with a message, the message of the gospel, and they were apostles with a small a, and apparently Andronicus and Junia were examples as two of those. And so, even if we were to say that this is a woman, which of course is debated, but I think probably it is a husband and wife team, Andronicus and Junia, and they are ones who are sent with a message. They're Christian emissaries of the Lord. And that's why Paul commends them as he does. And he even says they were in Christ before me. They had come to Christ before Paul had had his Damascus Road experience. And look at another, verse 8. Ampliatus, Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Like Eponidas, Ampliatus is Paul's beloved. He says, my beloved, and now he adds, in the Lord. What a wonderful commendation of these people. And it shows Paul's heart. He loves them. He cares about them. And how wonderful it is to have your name written forever in our Bibles as one who is a beloved in the Lord. It's the common relationship that the gospel brings to all of us. And then he says, verse 9, greet Urbanus or Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachus. The Y a little bit more pronounced with the U, Stachus. Notice he says, Urbanus, our fellow worker. That may indicate that Paul actually didn't know him personally and he's simply saying our fellow worker, but he certainly knows Stachus because he says, my beloved Stachus. Verse 10, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. That's that famous word, dokimon, which means tested and found approved. It could actually mean simply someone who is very respected as a Christian. And so there you have the house church of Aquila and Priscilla. A wonderful, commending group of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and for whom Paul is loving and commending as a way to teach all of us 
that this is what we ought to do toward each other. Encouraging, encouraging, encouraging. Look, there's enough tearing down. There's enough tearing down of Christians. There's enough negativity. There's enough criticism. We ought to be all about, especially as Christian people toward each other, showing the world how much love that we have for one another. John 13, 34 and 35 says, The world will know that you love me and that you love each other, and that love will radiate to the very core of what it means to be a Christian because you have love for one another. The very defining aspect of the gospel is that I love Jesus Christ and that I love others. And the world will know that you love me if you love one another. How can the world understand or grasp the concept of the gospel if we don't show the gospel through our love for one another? If we're criticizing our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are negative, if we are down on them, if we are all about pointing out their faults, how can the world know that there's any difference between them and ourselves? In fact, they'll actually guess that there isn't any essential difference and they'll say to us and they'll say about themselves, then I'm really no worse off than you or you're no better than me. A great crescendo is chapter 16. This is not add-on. This is not add-on at all. This is a crescendo that talks about relationships meaning everything. And don't you know, with Paul's commendation of the church that met in the house of Aquila and Priscilla, that there were a bunch of encouraged people. The second house church. Look at the latter part of verse 10. Greet those who belong to the fam- family of Aristobulus. And then one person, verse 11, greet my kinsman Herodian. Now you say, why do you assume that Herodian was worshiping in a house church with the family of Aristobulus? Well, it's very interesting. Aristobulus, according to some historians like Tacitus, tell us that there was a prominent man who was the brother of King Herod Agrippa I. And this particular man died. And if Herodian, this beloved kinsman that Paul refers to, is a part of the Herodian family, that is, King Herod Agrippa I, and if in fact this particular man, Aristobulus, was indeed the brother of King Herod Agrippa, according to these historians, then you have a house church meeting with the family of this man. He's deceased. Either the slaves of the family or even a part of the family itself is a part of a house church meeting in Rome And one of those, the one Paul commends in that place, probably the only one he knows since he hasn't founded this church, is his dear kinsman, his friend Herodian, who was part of the Herodian family, who comes to Christ, no doubt as others came to Christ, even slaves who either were continually slaves or freedmen. And they come and they worship with the family of Aristobulus. That's the house church of Aristobulus. And then thirdly, greet those, the end of verse 11, in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. 
Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Again, who might these be? Well, notice verse 12. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trufina and Trufosa. Now, aren't those lovely names? Those are women's names, and it may even be implied that these are sisters. You say, why? Well, it was common at that time to name children with the same Greek root word. And in this case, Trufosa, Trufina, or we would say Trifina or Trifosa, And apparently, these might have actually been sisters who were commended by Paul. And notice what he says about them, workers in the Lord. Again, hard workers, women. And he says also, greet the beloved Persis, another name of a female slave who has worked hard in the Lord. There are a lot of hardworking women in the church at Rome. Praise God. You would probably not want to name your twin sisters Tryphena and Tryphosa today, but Persis is sweet. Persis is actually a name that comes from somebody who hails from Persia, what we would say is today modern-day Iraq. And these three ladies commended in the house church of the family of Narcissus. We don't know much about Narcissus. It could be, as historians tell us, that Narcissus was actually a man who committed suicide. And it could be that this particular family continues on in the name of Narcissus and who has a house church made up of slaves and freedmen. And among those are these three wonderful workers in the Lord, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and the beloved Persis. And Paul says, either I know of them or I know them and they've worked hard in the Lord. So wonderful house church. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Now that's not a real common name. I know a man named Rufus. He's my tax man, Rufus Harvey. Very uncommon. And also his mother, it says, who has been a mother to me as well. A wonderful term of endearment. There are many, many ladies in the church. I'm thinking of some of them who themselves have never been able to either have children or have had a limited number of children, but who are mothers to many, to many people. And Paul says, she was in essence my mother as well. You say, well, what's significant about Rufus? Well, a couple of things. Number one, notice what it says about him. He's chosen in the Lord. It's a great way to describe a Christian. A Christian is someone who is elect, chosen, and Rufus is one of those. What else is significant about Rufus? Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. It could very well be that Rufus is the son of Simon of Cyrene who helped carry the cross of Jesus to Golgotha. Look in Mark chapter 15. You may have missed this in your reading of the Gospel of Mark, but it's an interesting thing to note that this is what most Bible teachers believe is the reference to who Rufus really is. Look at chapter 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and whom? 
Rufus to carry his cross. If, in fact, this is the son of Simon of Cyrene, do you assume that he would have been marked so very powerfully with the gospel of Jesus Christ because his own father carries the cross of Christ at least partway to Golgotha and who then sees the Lord Jesus Christ himself being crucified, might that mark powerfully Rufus's understanding of his role in the church and the role of his father? No wonder he can be affirmed as chosen in the Lord. And then verse 14, greet Asyncritus. I love this name, Phlegon. That's not Klingon. It's not a television program. That's a person's name. Hermes, Patrobus, which is, by the way, my new nickname for Patrick Howell, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. This is yet another house church, and I say that because of the last phrase, and the brothers who are with them in their house, in their house church. Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, or Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. You say, what's significant about those names? I have no idea. There's nothing else about them. That's all we know. But you know what we do know? They are brothers. Again, the commonality of their faith in Christ, the common union of their relationship to the gospel of Christ, and then one last house church represented to us by verse 15, greet Philologus, which is, by the way, my nickname for my good friend Phil Johnson. Every time I call him on the phone, he knows it's me because I say, Philologus Johnson, how are you? Julia, Nerus, or Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, implying another house church. What do we know about them? Well, it could be that because Philologus and Julia are mentioned together, that this is another husband and wife team, and that they are, of course, the hosts of this particular house church. Some have even implied that Nerus and his sister are their children, although some disagree. Nobody knows for sure. And then, of course, this Gentile, who is obviously from Greek origin, this sister in the Lord, Olympus, which is a great name, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Again, a a wonderful term of endearment, saints in Christ. Five house churches. Twenty-seven people, if you run all the way back up to chapter 16, verse 1. All of them very, very commendable. All of them working hard in the Lord. All of them seen as beloved in Christ. And notice how Paul concludes. All the churches of Christ, he says, greet you. And how do they greet them? Greet one another with a holy kiss. There's nothing sexual about that. There's nothing in that connotation that has anything to do with such things. 
In fact, that would be offensive to Paul and offensive to the church. And in most places today in which that kind of greeting or that kind of endearment still occurs, it would be offensive to them as well. This simply means that there were those when they greeted one another, when they loved one another, when they were showing affection to one another, they were greeting one another with a kiss of love. This was common. In fact, look at the end of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It was a kiss of love. It was a kiss of endearment. It was a kiss of, of affection. It had no sexual connotation with it whatsoever. In fact, at the end, I believe, of 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions again this kind of greeting. Verse 12 of chapter 13. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This was standard fare, especially in Judaism. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. A holy kiss. One that would speak of our holiness in Christ. And I love this reference in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14. This is one in which we ought to ourselves affirm, if not the tradition itself, but the intent of it. Verse 14 of 1 Peter 5, greet one another with the kiss of love. Greet one another with the kiss of love. This is a wonderful way for people to be affirmed and loved and encouraged and even in the sense of a physical embrace. Now, do you have to be careful with that? Of course you do. Do you have to be careful in a sex-crazed culture as we have it? Most certainly. And especially a husband to someone who is a female who is not his wife, or vice versa. You have to be very, very careful of this. But let's not get so far away from something like this that we don't express our affection for each other as we should. A side-to-side hug. A full-on hug with someone who is 20 or 30 years older than you are is quite appropriate. I've had wonderful saints in the Lord who are older women in this church come and plant on me a big old kiss right on the lips. And I love it. Because I know what the intent is. I know what they're all about. It is a wonderful affirmation of their pastor, of a brother in Christ. And we ought to resurrect something like this to show our affection for one another. There is clearly enough room for us to do it and to do it appropriately to affirm our love for one another. Now, having said all of this, I was reminded of this concept of not only our love for each other, but also the idea of showing the world the love that we have for one another and the opportunity with being a loving, kind, caring person as an entree to the gospel. I don't know if you saw this, but recently you probably, as I did, heard about the marathoner who dropped dead, I think of an enlarged heart after there was 
critical examination of this particular person in, a, in an autopsy. But you might have missed the column by Jay Grellen, who writes this. Of the hundreds of marathoners, their names were numbers 17 and 18 in the newspaper the day after the race. They were among the elite. Before March 2nd, the two had never met. But at mile 7 of the Little Rock Marathon, number 18 came up from behind, stuck out his hand, and introduced himself, which is an amazing thing because you're running at the same time. And, of course, they're obviously not so winded as you and I would be that they can carry on a conversation with one another. They both had traveled to Little Rock from the far north, number 17 from Minnesota, number 18 from Wisconsin. Number 17 was a software engineer for a chain of grocery stores. Number 18 was a graduate pharmacy student. This was his sixth marathon, number 18 said, with a personal best of two hours, 52 minutes. This was the marathon number, this was marathon number 102 for number 17. Three times he had finished in two hours, 26 minutes. When, number 18 asked, in 1981, 1982 and 1984, said number 17, who is 50 years old. I was born in 1981, number 18 joked. They ran together for the next 18 miles. On the mile 17 downhill, they ran the mile in 6 minutes, 32 seconds, faster than the previous three climbs of 7 minutes, 15 seconds. How you doing, number 18 asked at mile 21. At mile 24, number 17 said, only 15 more minutes. Up the last hill, number 17 ran ahead to finish at 3 hours and 2 minutes. 26 seconds later, the announcer called number 18's name and said that number 18's time qualified him for the Boston Marathon. Number 17 turned to congratulate him but couldn't find him. The morning after the race, number 17 was jogging in Hot Springs, and I guess if you run a lot, after you finish a marathon, you jog the next day instead of receiving help. (laughs) He passed a newspaper box and read a headline in the Hot Springs newspaper about a death in the Little Rock Marathon. From what he could read in the box, he didn't have the money to buy paper. The name of the man who died sounded like number 18. Number 18 collapsed at 11.03 a.m., just past the finish line. Medics inserted a breathing tube at 11.08. At 11.09, they defibrillated him. At 11.18, they put him in an ambulance, continued CPR, medicated him. The ambulance left for the hospital at 11.28. Doctors pronounced him dead at 11.59. Number 18 had never regained consciousness. Dennis Wallach, a native of Missouri, who lives in Chanhassen, Minnesota, was number 17. Dennis is a gentle-spoken Christian, a man who takes to the street to share the New Testament gospel. Sin separates every human from God. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin when he died on a cross, and Christ promises eternity in heaven to all who ask for forgiveness of sin and ask him to save them from eternity in hell. Dennis didn't say any of that to number 18 on March 2nd. I wasn't thinking in that vein at all, he said from Minnesota last week. It was good to be running with somebody, to not be running alone. Now, Dennis says, 
he has a renewed urgency to share that message. Now he understands all the more clearly, I'm not just here to run marathons. He regrets that he failed to take advantage of what he considers a divine appointment with Adam Nickel. This is what Dennis told number 18. Only 15 minutes left. Number 18 only had 15 minutes left in his life. There are probably people around you who are in desperate need of the gospel. And you could share it with them. And you could share not only the gospel with your lips, but the love that you have for fellow saints in Christ. And that would surely be a powerful tool for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that in your wonderful mercy, we would not just be running marathons in life, we pray that we would run in such a way that in our running, people would see our love for the saints like Paul and would be drawn to ask us even if we ourselves didn't initiate the conversation. Oh Lord, I pray that number 17 would indeed learn the lesson and that all of us, whatever our number may be, and the marathon of the race we call the Christian life would so love one another as a testament to the gospel and because of our common union in Christ we would be able as a tool of our affection for others be powerfully speaking of the gospel to those who need it. Lord, thank you for this list in Romans 16 of faithful brothers and sisters. Just as it was said of Aquila and Priscilla who risked their necks for Paul. Lord, may it be our own experience, physical or spiritual, that we would risk ourselves for the sake, not of criticizing, not of bad-mouthing, not of critiquing other believers, but loving them, encouraging them, speaking to them and of them in a way that commends the very gospel itself. May this be our experience, and may this be the blessed Bible Church of Little Rock. For your glory and honor we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.